Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 14th, 2022, and not only are we going to talk about the shocking news that rocked the pharma world this week, we're also going to get you ready for one of the biggest stories in the coming week. First up is the shocker. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, one of the top pharma and biotech trade associations in the U.S., surprisingly left the position amid reports she was having disagreements with board members. Sarah, you were working on this. What, what's going on here? So um, over the weekend, um, last weekend, there were media reports that indicated that Michelle McMurray-Heath, the relatively new CEO of Bio was on leave um, and amid some disagreements with at least some of the board of Bio over how, you know, she was leading the organization and what sort of topics she was willing to comment on publicly related to sort of health issues, maybe not quite directly (laughs) connected to Bio. And then um, early this week, it became clear that the board was going to meet more formally, I guess, to try and figure out what to do about her status. And um, early this week, um, McMurray-Heath turned in her resignation. Bio's kind of keeping her on as an advisor. I think, um, you know, the general sense is that, you know, she did not sort of voluntarily, you know, I mean, she voluntarily turned in her resignation, but, you know, this was sort of more of a she was really forced out and you know this is sort of the 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 nicer way for it to happen than um for you know her to necessarily be seen as you know being sort of voted off or um whatever um you know mcmurray heath came into bio after you know a really long time ceo and jim greenwood who was um you know a former leader of the energy and commerce committee in the house of representatives a, a you know powerful position kind of a politician with that sort of dc background mcmurray heath was sort of brought in as more of the regulator scientist background um she has she has wor- worked a little bit on the hill um and with the Obama White House earlier in her career, but her, you know, her expertise is, you know, she is an, a bench scientist, a doctor, um, you know, she's not really seen as a lobbyist and, but, and bio seemed to think they wanted to um, go a different route. And they also, you know, I remember back when bio was looking for a new CEO, I think they, they very sort of actively thought about wanting to, you know, think about diversity as well in terms of, you know, not just getting a older white man for the job. Um, And another thing they really promoted when she got hired was that, you know, because of her scientific background, she could really help deal with some of the challenges of the time. We were sort of in the, you know, really um, first intense months of COVID where we had no vaccines or treatments. There was more, you know, restrictions on daily life. And there was also a lot of like misinformation, disinformation, a lot of political challenges, you know, and sort of getting Americans to sort of take various aspects of COVID seriously. And I think they thought that, you know, she might have some success at sort of dealing with that scientific dialogue and maybe bringing science back to the industry. And 
I think what's going to be interesting to follow now is like, did Bio feel like that strategy in picking her was not successful? Do they go back to, you know, getting more of a politician, lobbyist, DC type moving forward? Um, or was this more just something about McMurray Heath in particular they didn't like? And might they get another manager who they like more, but also comes from a scientific background? Um, I'm getting some hints from people that they, they kind of think they'll go back to more of that like Greenwood type, um, you know, model where the person, you know, really has like sort of a lobbying focus and knowledge. But you know, it's been an interesting, complicated one to follow because, you know, I think personnel issues are always complex, right? And bio is an interesting organization because it doesn't just represent, you know, the smaller biopharma companies, the big pharma companies, it represents other um, industries we don't cover as much. It has a gigantic board, you know, even just on the more to biopharma side, you know, there are differences in sort of priorities and needs of the different size companies and depending on if they have commercial products out there or not. I mean, and it's certainly just been a, you know, I think a crazy time to be a trade organization in Washington between COVID um, you know, the change in the shift in sort of power in Washington from, you know, uh, Trump and Republican controlled government to a Democratic one. And certainly everything that happened around Trump leaving office in terms of January 6th created a lot of difficulties for lobbying organizations to work through. And then, of course, for the pharma industry, you had this incredibly big loss with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, the dramatic changes to drug price negotiation and Medicare. Um, and, you know, I think there was initially some people were thinking, you know, she got fired because, you know, pharma lost on the IRA. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that that helped her. But the sense I'm getting from people is this was something sort of a long time coming for people that for a lot of people at bio in terms of, you know, her management style and, you know, and other things that they were frustrated with. So I, it seems like it wouldn't be accurate to see this as, you know, just a direct consequence of the IRA loss. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the surprising part of this was that these jobs don't turn over like all that often. Like Jim Greenwood, like you said, Sarah was, I mean, he was head of bio for, you know, what, a decade and a half, something like that. And the person who was before him, I think, was the founder of Bio or like was the original CEO. So, you know, yeah, the the fact that they're having to pick somebody a couple of years after they picked somebody theoretically who would be there for the long haul is, you know, what surprised a lot of people. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting that, too, that, you know, I mean, if you if you if you talk about the you know kind of the the IRA and and that kind of thing, I mean, the other big trade organization in town, you know, pharma PHRMA, had the same kind of loss, and there's no in in you know indications that they're gonna be making changes at least at the very top, you know. So it yeah, it's I I, I guess a uh, you know. I don't. I mean, I don't know if it comes down to personalities or what. It's kind of a, like I said, I'm I'm still a little surprised at that at what they did. Yeah, I think also, um, you know, a number of people did bring up right that um, Steve Google at Bio does seem to be um, 
you know, fairly sort of safe, if you will, in his post. And right now, um, given, again, what's sort of seen as pretty huge loss for industry politically. Um, and that's where there's definitely some people who feel like, you know, who are questioning why McMurray Heath wasn't liked and if there were elements of, you know, people not accepting a woman in this leadership position of people not accepting a black woman in this leadership position. Um, and I think some, again, frustrations um, among people who felt like, again, she was never maybe initially welcomed as much by all parties and given the chance she should have been because of those things. Yeah, pharma as a uh, trade organization is uh, basically supported by big companies writing big checks to uh, you know make a big impact in DC. And uh, bio, as you noted, uh, um, Sarah has a lot more, uh, um, you know, a different assemblage of kind of how, how uh, uh, companies come together uh, um, in it, and a lot of its budget uh, is uh, based on the, um, the the conventions and the um, the meetings that they sponsor. And uh, you know, as we've been in the midst of COVID, that uh, um, revenue line has uh, uh, really uh, um, been uh, been restricted. And you know, through the uh, um, you know virtual meetings uh, just don't generate the same revenue that uh, um, that you know massive in-person uh, conventions uh, do. And uh, you know, I think it's hard for any organization that's sort of, kind of struggling with uh, um, budgetary challenges to, and as well as, uh, um, you know, sort of, kind of uh, policy setbacks uh, um, in the form of the IRA to uh, um, to really be running uh, smoothly. And that's uh, um, not to say that Vic uh, um, Heath's uh, um, fault in any way or that uh, um, she couldn't have done a better job, but there are, uh, you know, many, uh, many factors outside her control that, uh, you know, led to uh, um, a challenging situation for her. I was going to say a number of people brought up, you know, just how impactful BioNOP really being able to have the big in-person conventions were and that, you know, that also led to her having to, you know, reduce their staff as well. Um, and, you know, that led to like internally some, you know, staff um frustration as, you know, you can imagine regardless of who's, you know, if you, you know, or changing your organization, I think people said, you know, sometimes people just don't like change. And in this case, she was probably forced to make changes that were not necessarily within her control in terms of budgetary issues due to the pandemic. So I'm going to throw out one name for potential next CEO bio. <laughs> Fred Upton. That's a good one. Yeah, no, no I mean, no, I'll, I'll yeah. seriously, that that is a good one. He's retiring. He's got a lot of the same background that Jim Greenwood had. Exactly. It's the yeah. Jim Greenwood model. Yeah. Right. He's very, he's sort of, he's a, mo he's a more moderate Republican. He's obviously prioritized industry, FDA regulatory issues, um, you know, with his cures, um, initial cures bill and his, you know, now he's working again with to get trying, although it seems like that will not happen in his time to get another version of cures. So yeah, that would certainly be an interesting pick. Again, I think, you know, it might raise some eyebrows, again, feeling like go they're going back to a model that's, you know, again, focused on this older white guy politician and, you know, whether people feel like, you know, there's equally qualifying people but have slightly different profile than that. Is there any sense yet of what, Michelle is going to do 
you know, I mean, I, I mean, I'm assuming the senior advisor role that she's has now is not going to take up all of her time. Is you know, is she, does she go back to industry? Does she go to the FDA again? Does she, you know, take some time off and you know, take a vacation? I don't, you know. You know, I think that's. Um, I haven't heard anything. I think when you've mentioned, does she go to the FDA? I feel like that would be fairly hard optics wise. I know, um, you know, when President Biden was taking a really long time to figure out who would lead the FDA under him, um, her name kept emerging for that position as well. And to me, that just seemed sort of almost like impossible to be done. Um, you know, once you go lead, you know, the one of the biggest lobbying organizations for an industry that the FDA regulates, it's hard to see how particularly on the Democratic side of Washington, she would be accepted as the head of FDA. So it I seems like you'd have to think it'd be pretty challenging for her to go back to FDA now. But, um, you know, industry is probably more realistic path forward. The other thing I don't think I mentioned, but people seem to suggest, too, that um, Bio's not necessarily going to be like in a rush to name a new CEO. You know, tomorrow they have an interim that people feel like they'll be pretty happy, you know, steering the ship for a little bit, which I suppose would give Fred Upton time to finish his um, current term in Congress, maybe take a little break, <laughs> have a little rest before he gets yeah, back there you at go. it. They'll have to I mean, move his family from Michigan to D.C. <laughs> well, I think his, I mean, his children, I believe, are like older and everything. And so obviously he's already used to being in D.C. part time. So I'm not sure that would be like the big thing for him i uh i have learned not to uh uh guess against sue when she's uh doing predictive analysis but uh, um i think i will hear i don't think it's going to be uh right up there i don't uh, i don't think bio is going to need uh, that kind of a uh, uh of a hand uh going forward uh, just honestly because there's not going to be uh um you know trifecta democratic control that they have to uh um to worry about and uh, um and think about the uh um uh, you know, if you look at through kind of the um, the last few iterations of uh, healthcare reform, uh, you know, with Obamacare, you had uh, Billy Towson uh, running uh, pharma and Jim Greenwood still at uh, Bio, and uh, you know, uh, um, they were uh, famously able to sort of uh, keep uh, uh, price controls, price negotiations, whatever term you want to use, uh, out of it. Uh, um, you know, there were industry payments as um, as part of that, but uh, um, you know, in the IRA, the uh, um, you know, you could uh, say it was inevit inevitable there were going to be price controls, but, uh, you know, I don't think the idea that uh, Obamacare uh, wouldn't uh, include price controls was inevitable either. So, uh, um, but just sort of looking at through kind of, uh, um, you know, the political landscape, I don't, uh, um, you know, see another big uh, reform push. Uh, um, if anything, sort of the push will be to sort of kind of unwind aspects of the, uh, um, of the IRA, uh, um, you know, just like you saw the, um, the uh, the Obamacare mandate being uh, um, unwound into kind of bits and pieces as uh, um, as well. But, uh, um, you know, uh, I uh, um, uh, whenever I disagree with Sue, it's usually Sue that's right. So I don't uh, I don't want to be too bold here, but I do want to offer that counterpoint in terms of, sort of kind of what it uh, um, what it might mean for bio to be head to head by up in and what they what they might need. So, Matt, you just made two predictions. One is an election. Uh call that you know <laughs> at least one of the chambers is going to flip and then another about 
you know, the political sort of how much the industry has to be worried there's more coming for them. So now we have two things to hold you against. Sue only has one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess they're mutually uh, um, dependent Related. in many ways. But uh, um, but yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with that. We'll we'll have to uh, we'll uh, revisit this in some January uh, podcast and see uh, um, see how right it was on those. Uh, on those ones, I guess. I guess we're gonna uh, November. We'll tell. We'll be soon enough. To, but, uh, um, but, uh, but, yeah. Crystal balling aside, this is gonna be fun to cover going forward. So, definitely an interesting issue. Next, we're going to revisit the McKenna withdrawal hearing, which is going to begin just a few days from the day we're recording this. I know everyone's excited. So, Sue, you're pretty much leading the media pack on this story. Where, where are we at? Where are we at? Okay, T minus three days for an event that's been three years in the making, essentially. Less than three days, because it starts at, <laughs> what, 9 a.m.? 8 a.m. <laughs> 20 hours of McKenna hearing. <laughs> I can't wait. All virtual. <laughs> um, so this week, uh, we finally got an answer to who is actually going to decide on the drug's fate, ultimately. And... Um, that answer is both Commissioner Rob Califf and Chief Scientist Nemanji Bumpus. Um, hopefully I'm saying her name correctly. They are going to jointly decide, make the final decision as uh, co-signatories. Um, Califf, uh, unlike previously acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock, Califf was not recused from the matter. But since the chief scientist's office had already been brought in on the matter when Denise Hinton was chief scientist, um, Caleb wanted to keep the chief scientist um, involved in this issue. And I think it also honestly provides some cover for Caleb because Caleb has pre previously expressed reservations about political employees such as himself getting involved in product review and approval decisions that are better left to the agency's scientific staff. But uh, any decision is not going to be forthcoming before mid-January and probably a number of weeks or months later than that. And then uh, we also know who the advisory committee members are who are going to be sitting as the figurative jury for the three-day hearing. Uh, it's a 15-member panel more than half of whom have clinical expertise in maternal fetal medicine. And frankly, that's a victory for COVIS. Um, hearing officer Celia Witten several months ago had asked both COVIS and CEDAR what type of experts they wanted on the panel. And COVIS was very clear that it wanted um, a substantial portion of the panelists to be experts in OBGYN, and particularly maternal fetal medicine. Um, CEDAR, on the other hand, had suggested there only needed to be two MFM specialists, and it wanted a, a, a broader panel with epidemiologists and risk management and um, biostatisticians. And so uh, Celia Witten, in sitting the panel that she did, really um, went in Covis's direction. Although, Sue, it seems like the, the questions they're going to be asked were perhaps not the one that uh, one that Covis was uh, was hoping for, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, in terms of kind of the, the the acknowledging that the trial, uh, the previous trial uh, um, 
uh, didn't didn't work and and those kinds of things. Do you do you see any um, any any winners and losers in terms of the, the advisory committee questions that are going to be uh, going to be asked? Well, clearly that first question on whether the prolonged trial um, confirmed the clinical benefit of McKenna. I mean, that's obviously going to be a, a, a no question. Um, it was a no question at the 2019 advisory committee meeting. Um, Covis had sought to concede that question essentially here. They wanted to eliminate that question. They said, we acknowledge it didn't confirm the clinical benefit. And um, But Cedar said, no, we, we want that question remaining. We think it's important to the discussion. So that's question number one, and it's clearly going to be a no. So then, you know, just got to, COVID is just going to have to move on from there. So, Sue, you've read, I, I'm, I, I think, almost everything that's been in the docket, including, you know, so you pretty much know how they're going to approach this, the hearing itself. I mean, are you, are you expecting like fireworks? I mean, are they going to be arguing back and forth or yelling at each other? Or is it going to be like, you know, I give a 30 minute presentation, the next person gives does their 30 minutes, the next person does their 30 minutes, and then, you know, there's some cordial question and answer and then a vote. Honestly, since it's a virtual meeting, I just don't think you're going to get that level of antagonism that you had. And you did see that in the Avastin hearing back in 2011. Um, I just, I think the, the format is going to limit that. That's not to say there can't be antagonism in an advisory committee meeting held online. Uh, we've certainly seen that with the ODAC meetings recently. But I think it's going to be more tempered. Um, I'm not, not really sure how they're going to do this um, because there's going to be kind of one-on-one -on -one questioning. Be, like COVID, certain individuals from COVID's team are going to be allowed to question the individual presenters from FDA's team and vice versa. So it's curious to see how this is handled through the virtual format. <clears throat> I don't know that it's going to be cordial. Um, I think FDA is pretty exasperated <laughs> over all this, and COVID has really dug in its heels. So I do think there are some hard feelings on both sides. Um, I think it'll be more uh, enlightening to see the questions that the advisory committee members ask both sides. Uh, that's that's where I'm going to be particularly focused um, to see what issues they are focused on in their questions and sort of what hints they are giving and, and how they're asking their questions and to whom. Yeah, especially when you have a lot of practitioners, a lot more practitioners than you did the last time. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to see a lot more of, you know, kind of practical clinical questions, maybe. All right. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's almost no overlap between the two committees uh, that uh, um, that have reviewed this question as to whether the the um, should stay on the market, which is uh, different than how Avastin was uh, structured in terms of we're kind of uh, revisiting with basically the same panel that uh, had uh, voted it down before. Right. I mean, Covis is essentially getting a fresh start. There's only two people from the 2019 meeting who are going to be sitting on the panel this time around, and the panel total is is 15 people. So they have a fresh audience to make their case to. And so this the this meeting will function a lot like a traditional advisory committee does, where no matter what the vote is, FDA is not bound to make that 
to go with what the committee said, right? No, the structure is different than a traditional advisor committee meeting, but correct. Any any vote, <clears throat> whatever their final vote is, FDA is not bound by it. Celia Witten, the hearing officer, is going to issue her report within about 45 days, and those are going to include her sort of her observations and her recommendations. And then she's going to give both parties 45 days to comment on her report. And all of that is going to go up the chain to Califf and Bumpus, who will make the final call. It is a lot of, um, I don't know if a minute, but you know, it sort of seems like a lot of bureaucracy, I guess. I mean, just in thinking about how there's been a lot of commentary about how difficult it is for FDA to withdraw a drug if a company doesn't want to. I mean, just how long this can get dragged out even once you reach this hearing is quite um, impressive to me. Yes. And this is under the quote unquote expedited withdrawal process. And how many years has it taken? Three. <laughs> to October 2019, the advisory committee narrowly recommended that it be withdrawn. And we're back here October 2022. <laughs> and it's going to stretch into 2023. So yes. we're gonna, it's going to touch four different years. <laughs> Probably at least three and a half years. Yeah. Before we before we move off of this topic, the the whole co-deciding thing, I know that they, you know, I understand the reasoning why the commissioner doesn't want to get into, you know, have the pol politician, political appointees making, you know, drug approval decisions and so forth. But um, I'm assuming everyone, both both of them will have their legal counsel and they'll all, you know, kind of throw recommendations into this. But I mean, at the end of the day, even if they co-decide or if they sit in a room and say and kind of come to a consensus, I mean, are do you expect pretty much Caliph is going to be the one that kind of can steer this one way or the other? Ultimately, yeah, he's the commissioner. Ultimately, the decision is his unless he um, delegates it to somebody. So, you know, if you look at this, if you look at the regs, it's his decision. It'll just be interesting to look at the, you know, in the final documents, you know, FDA likes on occasion will put in, um, you know, memos and, and so forth of scientific disagreement in some of their drug approval, you know, mm -hmm. their background packages. Uh, you, you wonder if the, if they actually do disagree, if there is disagreement in the room when they're trying to decide this, if that gets included and how that's kind of you know, how that's how that's addressed in in the documents, because you could see it opening up. I don't know what, you know, I'm assuming there, you know, there's always the legal route to, you know, if they don't like this decision, they, you know, they could try and go to court to get it changed. Right. Covis can can um, take the final, uh, assuming that if the final decision goes against Covis, they can um, go to court with it. That's in the regs. I mean, obviously, Cedar is not going to go to court cool. against FDA if the decision goes against Cedar. That'd be funny. <laughs> that would be fun, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say with the two people um, deciding it, like I found the FDA's response about kind of why they're going with two and the differences interesting because, again, if 
I mean, obviously, this has been an unusual situation with Avastin being the only other time this has happened, but it just seems like FDA is going to have to think more about, like, consistency issues going forward if if potentially they do stick with their, you know, commitment to being a little more strict about the, you know, making sure companies really do follow through with accelerated approval um, commitments or get pulled that, like, you sort of, to me, you have to kind of standardize the process, right? And, like, so you have to figure out a little bit more carefully. And I understand there can be some issues if there's particular conflict of interest, things that require a particular person to not be in the position to decide. But it just seems like you have to have like a standard, a little bit more of a standard procedure than has seems to exist here so far. Yeah, I mean, FDA basically said, well, there's not really any standard procedure here. So right. that's why their comments so sort of funny, because it feels like at some point you that's part of their job is to is to have it be sort of standardized so that it seems, you know, again, sort of fair and, you know, you know, every company or product is kind of being treated within the realm of possibility the same way. And if Caliph wants to event, you know, ultimately doesn't want a political appointee making these calls and want and wants it delegated to the chief scientist, this is a way to kind of set that in motion. I mean, because they had you know, they had the unusual situation where the chief scientist left and they had to bring somebody new in towards the end of this process. If you want the chief scientist eventually to make the call, then you include that person in this one, hoping you can the next time you can take the step to where you have you can have the chief scientist involved from the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah there, there is still a possibility that uh, there could be some accelerated approval reforms uh, passed by Congress after the uh, the election in the uh, lame duck section and it'll be interesting to see uh to what extent this uh um hearing and how it plays out the you know the final decision will be known by uh by the time the um legislation's fates decided but uh um you know if there are sort of uh, um you know fireworks or complications that sort of kind of come to light because uh, all this it's a it really puts a spotlight on uh, this uh, um quite uh, um bureaucratic uh process and uh, you know if congress wants to make it uh, less Byzantine and give uh, FDA some more uh, streamlined authority, this could be a uh, real impetus for that. Yeah, I I personally can't wait to see how this turns out. I know no one's excited about two and a half days of hearings, but, you know, Sue, I know you're excited that this at least is kind of got, we finally gotten to this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've been covering this drug since the 2009 advisory committee meeting. on this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've, I I remember covering it in 2010-ish when FDA made the decision to to do the um, the relaxed enforcement authority with the compounded versions, which is a, I mean, that seems like forever ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a a hot button uh, uh, drug topic that this does not uh, um, involve? We've got accelerated approval. We've got drug pricing. We've got uh, compounding. Uh, Trying to think of every, you know, sort of kind of the, uh, the, um, the, uh, 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 the, the FDA bingo that we can play with this, uh, um, with the yeah. drug. Obviously, it's, it's an important, uh, um, you know, uh, um, health issue as well. I don't want to make make light of it in that way, but, uh, um, but it is it is remarkable sort of kind of how, uh, um, how it's uh, um, been involved in so many different uh, um, elements of sort of, kind of the the challenges that the agency faces. Matt, health equity. 
yes, clinical absolutely. trial diversity. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> thank, thank you for adding to the uh, the, the card there. Yeah, yep. there you go. That's that's five, right? Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had the same idea about bingo, honestly, uh, earlier this week when I was reading through some of the stuff. So. <laughs> Well, finally, we're going to look at more of the impact of the approval of Amelix's Relivrio. Sue, it looks like the FDA may have opened some additional pathways to the gathering to the gathering of confirmatory evidence necessary for an accelerated approval. Right. So, <clears throat> in approving the Amelix ALS drug, um, FDA determined that the Phase two trial, Centaur, could not stand on its own as substantial evidence of effectiveness. So they looked for confirmatory evidence. And the Centaur trial, the primary endpoint was a functional endpoint and it met that endpoint, although it was deemed not, not as robust as everyone would have liked. Um, so what FDA ended up accepting as confirmatory evidence was a post hoc exploratory analysis on long-term survival uh, comparing the group that was originally randomized in Centaur to the drug versus the group that was originally randomized to Centaur uh, or in Centaur to placebo. And this was notable because there was some comment among the FDA reviewers at the advisory committee questioning, well, can your confirmatory evidence really come from the same trial that you have deemed not sufficient on its own? to serve as substantial evidence of effectiveness. And in this regard, the FDA said, yes, here the Centaur captured the functional primary endpoint, which it met, and the long-term survival data, these are distinct concepts, to use FDA's words. So they found it acceptable um, to rely on the, the survival data from Centaur. And also, um, they've done this in some other cases where they've relied on data from the same study <clears throat> to serve as confirmatory evidence. Uh, it's been generally seen in rare diseases, and we have uh, we have a story that ran early this week that has a little list of about six such examples. So it's not unprecedented that they did this, um, but apparently from the people I've talked to, uh, this appears to be the first time that FDA has accepted survival data as confirmatory evidence. Normally, your survival data would be, say, your primary endpoint, and you'd look elsewhere for, for, for confirmatory evidence. Um, but this is, they've sort of flipped the story here in this case. So it's interesting because FDA is supposed to be coming out with a guidance on. Um, approval based on a single adequate and well-controlled trial with confirmatory evidence. That guidance has been on CEDAR's guidance agenda for the past two years. We've not yet seen anything, but I, you know, the, from the from the experts I've talked to, this certainly does seem to, to open the door to more avenues to reaching that confirmatory evidence objective. Yeah, I thought it was, it was really interesting kind of well, one of the one of the the people you talked to, um, David Rosen, was kind of trying to figure out if this kind of thing will get this sort of flexibility, whatever you want to call it, will kind of bleed into. I think it was the term he used: non-threatening, non-life-threatening diseases with no alternatives, where you know sponsors will be trying to 
kind of make the argument, well, you've done it with, you know, you've done it in ALS. Can you do it in, you know, a more common disease? And, you know, I know we've seen that kind of flexibility. We've seen flexibility in rare diseases. FDA loves to talk about that. But just just making sure that that's consistent across the rare disease spectrum is difficult at the agency. I can't imagine what it would be like trying to apply a policy like that to, you know, a more, uh, you know, a, a non-rare disease, I guess is probably the best way to talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like, again, going back to my point with McKenna about, you know, just who's the decider, I think that particularly FDA and getting into this flexibility space, um, you know, FDA is is created by right. You, you know, it's an agency of the government. It it operates under laws passed by Congress and is supposed to operate under very sort of formal regulations and rules. And I think you just the closer they can stick to having kind of a clear, consistent sort of you know process for how they make decisions and why. I think the more sort of trust and respect they sort of hold as a regulator and you know and certain and sort of uh gives people a clear sense of sort of confidence in the product approvals the more you sort of start bending flexing you know changing the rules without at least a very clear justification of why it's okay in certain circumstances and not in others i think you just start to run into you know not just like public relations type challenges, but again, things beyond that. I mean, you're, you're going to get companies coming to them with all different t types of arguments, you know, if they're seeing other companies get this. And I think, um, you know, they really have to think about this going forward and, you know, they need to be able to somehow. And I, I do appreciate that some of this is 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 hard, you know, like sometimes, you know, you go back to the uh, that you know it when you see it type quotes and things like that. But I, I just feel like they have to strive a little bit harder to, you know, give people this understanding of, you know, what the rules are, maybe when it might be okay to flex or break the rules a little bit and why. Otherwise, it just becomes, you know, a little bit of, of seeming like there's no consistency or there's, you know, there's less, you know, science behind what they're doing than they would like to tell you. Yeah, if you think about rules of thumb that uh, sponsors should operate from, uh, counting on a post hoc analysis to uh, get your product approve, uh, approved would not be one of them, yet in this case, that's what uh, that's what happened. So uh, um, I think that's a, uh, uh, something that sort of, you know, FDA should be cautious about. Uh, um, Sarah, you're exactly right. Your comments are interesting, Sarah, because a couple of the experts that I talked to said, well, you know, this is going to be the rare case where they're going to go with a single adequate and well-controlled trial and confirmatory evidence. But that's not going to stop sponsors from trying to go that route. <laughs> right. I mean, they're right. It's like once FDA opens the door, you're going to get companies, you know, again, the 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 particularly given depending on the disease area or what treatments are out there. I mean, you're going to get companies that are at least going to try and make creative arguments and whole, I, I mean, you wrote a story about this with McKenna. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of overlapping issues, I think, for FDA and companies to think about here. But you wrote a story with McKenna where, you know, Covis took 
FDA's words in situations like the AMLEX situation or in other cases where they've, you know, been willing to, you know, potentially be flexible in other ways and try to sort of use it against them and say, you know, and say like, look, FDA's Rick Pazder has said, you know, a failed trial doesn't always mean a failed drug. Um, again, I think like I've been just thinking about a lot about, you know, Califf's push to want to tackle misinformation and, you know, FDA during the pandemic wanting to be seen is saying, oh, we call balls and strikes, we call balls and strikes. And there's a very clear strike zone and a very clear ball zone. And, you know, you you really follow this closely and it's it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think they have to somehow try as best they can to kind of rectify that going forward, both again, for the sake of their sort of public trust by patients, by doctors, um, for the sake of companies to have some kind of predictability and understanding, and also for them just not to get, again, sort of everything turned back on them when companies, every company is going to be saying, well, you're doing this for this. And, you know, when you think about, um, you know, when companies can potentially go to court and challenge FDA, you know, I think there's that term that always comes up of sort of like, essentially like our agencies kind of treating each you know case and so forth consistently and fairly and i think that's something they have to think about too but fda will tell you that each drug approval decision each development program is case specific drug specific yeah in a way that's you know that's that's great for the FDA, but it's also the FDA. It's also a crutch for them because, yeah. like Sarah said, you can't be consistent if you're taking everything case by case. So, and but you want to be consistent with your policy. So you know, <laughs> it it's it's a it's a tough one. But you know, and again, they've probably had this problem since the what was it the sixty two Drug Amendments Act that required two adequate, well controlled studies. I mean, you know. What counts as an adequate and well-controlled study? Well, we've it's come down to well, one study counts as multiple adequate and well-controlled studies. You know, so it it you know I mean you wish you could draw a line, kind of a, a really bright line that you know you can't cross for diseases that you know like these rare diseases where there's a hundred patients in the entire world and it's completely un not possible to do a clinical trial. You know, and with placebo, be, you know, because it's unethical and, you know, you know, you wish it, they, these boxes would easily, you know, kind of fit together. But, you know, it's, you know, it, unfortunately, it's the for every time they try and draw a bright line, it's muddied and gray and there are more and more products that are kind of fitting in the middle than there are on either obviously on either side of the line now well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on itunes google play TuneIn, soundcloud and spotify by searching for pharma intelligence and if you're so inclined feel free to give us a review thanks again for listening to the to drug fix i'm derek ingery with sarah carlin smith sue sutter and matt hobbs stay safe get vaccinated and we'll see you next time